0: Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast.
1: This is Patty Ashton and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is.
0: Hi, I'm Tom Brake, and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg, and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. You
1: because I'm not persuaded by the case <laughs> for war. This is what positive politics can do Hello, you are listening to part one of the Doctor Mark Pack interviews. I hope you enjoy it. Remember, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, Limehouse Pod, and always feel free to drop us an email on the Limehouse Podcast at gmail dot com. Enjoy the show. You've got some amazing books out there on the Second World War. Um Bomber Harris mm-hmm. Uh, Eisenhower wow you are a bit of a second world war oh, so, so, yeah second world war.
0: war books behind my right shoulder behind your right shoulder a wall of politics books jeez and over over on the other wall a yeah. uh, smorgasbord of what is it history science yet more politics and then even more politics so this is this and is quite yeah. a big cobweb which i should do something about no
1: the cobweb adds to the library effect <laughs> but yeah no it's, it's amazing um just yeah I've never been, uh, this is kind of like how I envisage my bedroom to be one day, except this isn't a bedroom, it's an amazing living room. Wow. So anyway, um, I'm going to get some questions. Yeah, out. sure. Um, but yeah, how, what's your, what's your background, your journey into mm. the Lib, mm. lib Dems? Well, I, I
0: joined the Liberal Democrats originally for the least glorious of reasons imaginable. Um, in that as was at university, a friend of mine was running the Liberal Democrat Society, and it was one of these... Situations where there was a minimum number of members a society had to have to qualify for okay. student union funding. Yeah. He told me. That he was just three people short of hitting the threshold, <laughs> right. they twisted my arm to join. I do wonder how many people he told he was just three people short. Because yeah. I think if you were, were going to make it up, three is a much more credible number. Because <laughs> yeah. if you tell somebody that you're just one person short, that might sound a little bit like you're over-egging the pudding. Okay. But three is enough to make it feel like, oh, I could help you by doing this. Right. Yeah. And yet it plausible. So who knows? He subsequently ended up a, uh, a Tory party candidate against Norman Baker in Lewis, a couple of general elections ago, so I'm, um, I'm hoping my political career has turned out a little bit more, a little bit more successful yeah, and fruitful. So
1: you've been on the Lib Dem staff before, right? Yeah, so yeah. I worked
0: at Party HQ for just under a decade. I ran the party's uh, digital operation through two general elections in 2001 and 2005.
1: Just, just in case, um, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. I didn't mm. know it was that long. Mm. Oh, that's a long, long time, huh? Mm. You're like, wow, that's yeah. that's an awful lot you've seen and yeah. done then. And
0: so, and that's partly why I then decided to sort of leave working for the party because, I'm sure, yeah, you, know, you may well have seen this as well that you know, if if, if you look around, people who are in a, in a job, you know, in a workplace, it's not that uncommon to see people have basically been there for too long. Yeah. And once you're around a decade in, there is a sort of. Well, am I going to be here for the rest of my life or should I go and do something else? And if it's if you don't want to be there for the rest of your life, you have to you have to jump. Um, So that's why in the day after the European elections in 2009 was when I sort of stopped working for the party. Um, Our election results, you may have noticed, have taken a bit of a dive since then. But correlation and causation apparently are not always (laughs) uh, completely related. Um, and so I then moved into communications, working uh, for a, a communications agency, and then switching to switching to another one uh, about
1: three three and a half years ago. So yeah, and and you obviously um, I would have done, I don't know, I, I would have done a vague in introduction <laughs> to you and <laughs> what you've done and stuff, but you're, I started reading your hundred and one ways <laughs> to win an election with um, Ed uh, is it Ed uh, Maxfield? Ed Maxfield yeah. Uh, and that is a fantastic read. Yeah. I mean. I'm dyslexic, so there was just like, oh, this is amazing. Literally, highlighter, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Where did the concept of that come from? Uh, I mean, Ed and I had
0: sort of talked a little bit off and on about whether we should do a book. And I think, as you can tell from the number of books that surround me, I'm yeah. just old enough that still, that that idea of a published book with your name on it has something extra about it. So oh, it was yeah. sort of almost been a dream of mine for a long time. Oh, one day I'll write a book. <laughs> and I'd done quite a few chapters of books or helping to edit books, etc. but that idea of having a book that had my name or you know, my and a co-author's name was still a little bit of an aspiration. And Ed and I were chatting and what we realised was that the thing that most put us off the idea of writing a book, the huge amount of time and effort involved, we could sort of make manageable if we went for 101 ways to win an election or something along those, that sort, because that actually is not writing a book. That's yeah. writing 101 articles and because each of the chapters is about 600, 650 words long, which so is good. the typical length of an op-ed. And Ed and I have you know, often over time helped ghostwrite op-ed columns for politicians and so on. So it's a sort of number of words that we're used to. Yeah. And when you start thinking, OK, so that's writing maybe really badly, <laughs> but drafting two op-eds a night yeah. every night for under two months... That then begins to, oh, I can, you can sort of see how at the end of two months we'd have a really bad book (laughs) and then give it another couple of months we could turn that into, and so that sense of, oh my goodness, the idea of writing a whole book is impossible. Yeah became, actually, no, this is really quite quite doable. Yeah. And then, of course, we're thinking about, well, in terms of the reader, would that be useful? And, of course, if you're writing for a busy audience, because yeah. Yeah, politici- politi- political activists are often very busy, short of time, having a book that easily breaks down into short chunks is not just a convenience to allow us to write it, but actually as you know, um, fingers crossed, it has turned out in practice for readers, but yeah, a useful yeah. structure for
1: readers as well. I I find personally it's really good. I mean, I don't I don't do much tube journeying because I'm I, I I drive my van a lot, but when I am on the mm. tube, it's amazing. You know, mm. you know, you feel informed mm. if you take a six minute journey on a train because the chapters are so lovely and concise that you read one mm. of these chapters that oh that's put a really good thought track in my brain after mm. three minutes on a tube drive. Tube ride was that your intention in the bo- busy modern age
0: yeah I, I mean it's very very kind of you to say that i'm glad we we have a happy reader are yeah. <laughs> please post a review on amazon <laughs> um, ha-
1: i'll probably already have uh,
0: but th- there are other books like that which i think have a similar effect obviously it's easier to tell if you're you know it's easier for me to tell if it and to judge it if it's a book that i've just read and not been involved in writing um phil Cowley and colleagues have done a couple of excellent collections of 50 chapters uh, the first called Sex Lies in the Ballot Box, the second imaginatively I... more Sex Lies in the Ballot yeah, Box, yeah. Uh, which is a set of short chapters, deliberately jargon-free. At most, each is allowed to have one chap- uh, one table or one graph in, no more, which takes a bit of serious political science research, but presents it in a very clear way. Um, so you can sit down and, as you say, you can, you can read a chapter and feel you've got a real sense of understanding about what huge bounds of research says one of the chapters that particularly has stuck in my mind from the first of the two volumes was a really interesting look at how ignorant yet correct the public generally is on facts to do with politics so it's very easy to get really depressed if you ask the public questions like what is the current rate of inflation how big is the nhs budget how much do we spend on international development how many immigrants are there? All of those sorts of questions. You, you tend to get answers that are wildly inaccurate and okay. often inaccurate in a very pessimistic way that people answer it almost exaggerating their worst fears of how the country looks. So you can look at those numbers and think, oh my goodness. Lord. However, if instead you look at, and this chapter does this you know, really nicely, if you look at people's views about how much of a problem we have with something, So people might be really bad at knowing what the rate of unemployment is. But if you ask them, you know, how much of a problem is unemployment to you, your family, to the country, those measures move very closely in step with the truth. So although people are quite bad at getting the underlying information right, in terms of passing that into something that means what are your views on what governments should prioritise, whether a politician's doing a good or a bad job, actually the public become pretty good at that. And I I guess a good example of this is there'll be a lot of people probably listening to this at the moment who think that the NHS budget is not high enough. And they'll think the NHS budget is not high enough, not because they necessarily actually know what the budget is Mm. and not because they necessarily know... what the annual spend on A&E services in any one of England, Scotland, Wales, or Northern Ireland is, but because of a broader sense, if you see lots of stories and maybe you hear stuff and maybe you know somebody who works in, in a hospital, that A&E services are under ma- massive stress. And so even if your answer is massively wrong as to how much you think we spend on A&E services, if you then get told what the true answer is, that's very unlikely to change your opinion on, do yeah. you know we need to spend more because the A&E services are under stress. Or, you yeah, know, if your view is, you know, it's not about money, it's just incompetent management. Likewise, if you discover that we're spending less than you expected, it's not gonna change that view. So so in the end, it's really quite an optimistic bit of research, but the beautiful thing is that is boiled down into, I think it's three, maybe four pages of very clearly written jargon-free prose that takes you from the, this is why you might be really downbeat about what the public think to here is a completely different way of looking at it. what better way of spending a few minutes on a tube journey than that? Yeah,
1: no, I, I yeah, I agree. I think it's really, yeah, jargon free. And also, you know what, when it comes to politics, I think people really admire someone who's able to just say, right, you know, I'm I'm going to talk to you in a, simpl- in a simplistic way. And, and, and I'm not, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's part of Donald Trump's success. I mean, for all uh,
0: that so many of his views are so abhorrent, yeah, if you just look at it from a purely technical point of view, his communication ability. He has really short sentences with really short words. He also has this weird way of pausing at slightly unusual points, mid-sentence, which like therefore- the
1: end, yeah, Like a Dan Brown book. Yeah, which, yeah, that's a good way,
0: <laughs> good, very good way of putting it. And it it, it sort of, it all. it's almost like he's, he's reading uh, sort of straightforward poetry, but non-rhyming poetry, because he keeps on pausing after just a few words, almost regardless of where he is in the sentence. That's quite an odd yeah. way of speaking, but it makes it super, super clear and easy to follow. And there is a massive clarity. So if you think back to the US presidential election, you know, build that wall, make America great again. They're both dynamic things. You know, there's a let's do this thing. This is, you know, we're going to make the world better. We're going to do this thing. And a real wealth of detail that you can infer from the very simple sentence about his view on the world what he thinks needs to be done what his priorities are etc by comparison you know whenever I I I, I mention this in talks that I give and you and then ask a room full of people okay name a slogan of Hillary Clinton's you know everyone's just said remember you know build that wall make America right again silence frowns then descend and maybe a few people remember I'm with her and which was one of her slogans and I think it's easy to under appreciate uh, particularly, if, I, I guess, if you're a man, the symbolism in the I'm with her when you're running for a post, which has only had men elected to it. But nonetheless, even with that important caveat, I'm with her is a much weaker thing than build that wall. And it doesn't really tell you what sort of society uh, you, you know, she wanted, what sort of policies yeah. she wanted to enact. And then if you say, okay, name a, name a policy of Hillary Clinton's. you know, with With Trump... Make America great right. again, build that wall, you've got a sense of policy. What are what are the policies that go with it? Mm. Again, you know, even though you know people interested in politics in Britain probably were following the US presidential election in more detail than the typical American voter given how obsessed we are with American news, people really struggle yeah. to name a Clinton slogan. And and that's why in a way I'm fairly optimistic about the future for liberalism is yeah, we've taken two really bad blows in the last year you know brexit here and trump on the global stage but you look at the quality of the the liberal campaign in each case it was so weak mm. and it only just lost um, that yeah two two bad defeats but that yeah. that isn't a reason to be pessimistic i mean that... about our ability to start winning again in future
1: so thanks so much first of all for you guys to for listening for, for choosing to tune in. Like I said, we're on iTunes, we're we're on SoundCloud. If you feel like reviewing us on iTunes, it's gonna help out an awful lot. So yeah, spread the word as best you can. On um, we're on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter and our um our address there is at LimehousePod. And then obviously a massive thanks to Mark Pack for popping into the Limehouse, uh, we, we popped him in a nice comfortable seat and he he was just on point with every single question. he's He's a total genius, great insight um, into past and present of the the liberal Democrats and and how it, how he feels it's all gonna play out and and what have you. So yeah, we'll we will see you soon at this lovely Limehouse of ours. Drop us an email, let us know how you're doing, if there's any issues you want addressed, uh, anything at all. Feel free, our email is thelimehousepodcast at gmail.com. So in the meantime, you take care, you look after yourself, be good to one another and smile. It goes a long way.